Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are back to Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom and gosh, I don't remember all the other people that are with them. I have to go read it. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of them. It's a missionary dream team. Yeah, it is. I, I like that. That that works out really well. A missionary dream team. Um, we've got all the superheroes, uh, the Book of Mormon Avengers have assembled <laughs> here, and they are going over to the Zoramites to preach the gospel to them. And uh, one of the stated reasons for this is they want to prevent contention, war, that could happen if the Zoramites join themselves with the Lamanites. It's kind of interesting how this all turns out because uh, the narrative seems to indicate when we get to to chapter 35 that um, one of the actual catalysts to the Zoramites deciding to go over and join the Lamanites and attack the Nephites is because Alma and all of his friends have come over and preached the gospel to them and convinced some of them to to leave and go back to the Nephites. And so now the rest of the Zoramites get mad. It's kind of akin to, to what Al- Ammon and his brethren do. So, you know, <laughs> uh, poor Alma. <laughs> Just, <laughs> this guy is, is, has really had a rough but amazing life. And, and I think he really exemplifies someone who has taken up his cross, right? He, he recognizes the his faults, the things he's done that, that have been contentious or led to contention. And really, he's dedicated himself to the preaching of the word and persuading others to come to Christ. And, and he really does it amazingly. And the consequence of that is that there will always be those who persecute those who come to Christ. That's just how, that's just what happens. That's the way it goes. Uh, Christ says that right at the beginning of the Beatitudes. And so here we have, uh, you know, it kind of comes full circle because in, in Alma 31, where he's gone over, he sees their worship practices He's completely amazed by them. He says, okay, this is going to be a unique experience. I better go empty myself and go through a process communing with God and, and prepare myself and those that are with me to, to really get into this. And so he goes and, and prays a beautiful prayer that, that we can learn a lot from. Um, I don't know if, you know, I, I always wonder, are those are the actual words Alma said? Was there somebody like there writing it down or, or Alma's recording afterwards and he's like, you know, writing a poem that was his prayer. <laughs> I thought, I've wondered the same thing. <laughs> you know, because when you actually pray, right, it's like all over the place and lots of ums and uhs. And, um, and, and, and really when you're praying personally, there's uh, a lot of it that's not words at all, right? Um, because how can, how can really words be, describe what, what your experience with uh, communicating with your father in heaven is? 
they can't. So personal prayers really, in in my personal prayers, and I imagine others are, are similar. Most of it really isn't words at all. Anyway, that's kind of a, a side note there. But Alma here has has prepared himself in a ver- in a way reminiscent of uh, beatitude style, and he comes among the Zoramites and he's preaching to them, and there seem to be some people listening to him, um, but they don't have a whole lot of interest because. He's standing there teaching, and a whole group of poor people come up and start talking to him. And And uh, I love how he says uh, over there in verse 7, Therefore he did say no more to the other multitude, but he stretched forth his hand and cried unto those whom he beheld, who were truly penitent, and said unto them, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so, blessed are ye. Boom. Right? There's kind of a Alma's version of Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. Right. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And because that's what he begins to explain here. Blessed are ye. And then he goes to explain, you you are ready to receive the kingdom of God. And this is done through faith. Faith is the driving process of this, or the driving force, I guess you could say, of this beatitude process. And so Alma Alma tries to describe to them what it's going to be like. This is the journey you're going to take. This is the experience you're going to be, you're going to have. And it's going to be like a seed. And so he tries to paint this, this uh, metaphorical picture for them so that they will understand the experience they're about to have as they listen to what happens next with Amulek preaching about Christ. And I, I love how Alma's kind of preparing the ground and, and telling them, hey, you know, Watch out when when Al, when Amulek starts talking about Christ. This is these are the things you're going to experience, and when you experience them, realize that this is God changing your heart. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is really beautiful. When they're in verse six, and when Alma heard this, yeah, and he, and he I'm sorry, when he, what what verse was I looking at? I got caught up in what you were saying. I was like, I just like that so much. <laughs> well, verse six it says he heard this. He turned him about. Oh his yeah, face when, he, when, he, when he turned him. it. Yeah. He, yeah, I like that. You know, he just he's like, "Okay, I'm done with you guys. You guys are ready." <laughs> <laughs> I, I was plowing the wrong ground. This was too hard. I'm going to go over here. This stuff's way more fertile. <laughs> yeah, I love what Alma is doing here and the foundation of putting first things first. That blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, to blessed there in the Greek means it's been translated as happiness in the Beatitudes. It's been translated as prosperity. I think that's really unfortunate that it's been translated as prosperity because that's a very loaded word in uh, especially westernized Christianity uh, within the last 100, 200 years. But the concept here, and it really comes really into the conversation of the plan of salvation in us becoming like our heavenly parents and becoming like God, is because the blessed there really refers to as experiencing what God would experience were he here, to receive a fullness of God. That if God were here, this is who God would be. And for you to be this, you are becoming as God. That, that this is God. And so to come through that whole process, that by the very end, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. All of a sudden, you're becoming enveloped into the order and the family of God. That you are now in that fellowship of what it is to be God. The Beatitudes are really this beautiful way of coming into the presence of God. And that's exactly what Alma is bringing them here to. Um, with that with that first thing of turning them into 
blessedness. Blessed are ye who are lowly of heart. That is God. That's the God experience he's bringing them into. And then, just like you said, Ben, now it's about faith. He brings them into the essence of faith. And here in 21, we have the famous verse about faith. And now, as I said, concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, ye, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And while I love that definition, I do, I love that definition, and it gives us so much rich discussion on faith. I think in a lot of ways for me, I'm still wanting a little bit more, though. I'm still wanting a little bit more because faith, I can have hope for things, but there was there were a very large portion and chunk of my life where I was completely active in church. I was there every Sunday. I was reading my scriptures every day. I was saying my prayers. I was doing everything that I could possibly do. But there were moments in my life and there were experiences that I had outside of my control that had robbed me of my hope. I literally lost my hope. And I remember talking with my wife in, in moments, and it's like, my faith is still here. I still have faith. I still believe. But there were years and years stacked on each other where I lost my hope. And when I read this, therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. It didn't land for me. Like I read that over and over again. I'm like, but I don't have hope, but I'm doing everything that I can. And I'm trying to have faith in it and I'm believing in it. And something just wasn't landing for me. And over time, I started to have experiences where I... I would experience God and I learned to experience God in new ways than, than sometimes even what my, my home and my, my religious tradition center had taught me. And as I've gotten older, I read, you know, I read a book from, from a, a famous psychologist, James Fowler, who wrote a very well-known book called Stages of Faith, where he talks about the psychological development, the psychological human development, and how human beings are always trying to find meaning and the different developmental stages that we go through of faith. You know, we talk a lot about children, childhood development, but we very rarely talk about adult development and psychological development, let alone how that happens on the stage of faith, right? But in this book, I, and I find it, it's a wonderful book. It's, uh, it's a very, very, very well-known book in the field of, of this study. But one of the things I love about it is that he distinguishes between faith and belief in a beautiful way. And for him, he talks about faith as the essence of a person's of a person's heart. It's it's that thing that a person's heart is set most upon. That it's the it, when you ask someone what is your faith, it is a very intimate question that speaks directly to the soul of what that person derives from and pulls from on the inside out to be able to have action, to be able to move, to act, and, and for asking them, why do you do what you do? What gives you the ultimate motivation for you to be and to act and to, and to do anything in your life? And so when you ask someone, what is your faith in a, in Fowler sense? And I really think this, for me, this crosses over into the scriptures. And this is really what I've been using as my meaning for faith here, is that it's a very, very intimate word uh, when you ask someone that. But however, there's this other concept of belief, and belief is for Fowler, and I and here's where I think belief can be a, a bunch of different things, um, and we can use it in different definitions. But for Fowler, it becomes more of a creedal assertion of certain propositions of a of religious tenets of 
of uh, of an institutional church, for instance. And so he quotes it in uh, the way that he quotes it. He says, the point I'm trying to bring out is one that Smith, and Smith is another scholar that Fowler's talking about. I'm trying to bring out one that Smith develops more thoroughly. So pervasive is the impact of secularizing consciousness that even religionists and persons of faith have tended to accept the culture's truncation of belief to a set of propositions or a commitment to a belief system. Many modern Westerners, when, when encountering someone of another religious tradition, are likely to ask, what do you believe? As if that were the key question. Smith's careful work, with the cumulative impact that I can scarcely hope to communicate here, helps us to see that curiosity about what they believe, to reach any significant level of death, has to be transformed into a question of faith. Or in other words, on what or whom do you set your heart? To what vision of right relatedness between humans, nature, and the transcendent are you loyal? What hope and what ground of hope animate you and give you shape to the force field of your life, and how do you move into it? Oh man, that speaks to me so much. That faith is really just the essence of who and what you are. What gives you the essence of that inner nature to do anything at all? Have we really explored that within ourselves? Have we really gone deep to see what that very, very center source of action is, that thing to which we are transcendently loyal? And he says the failure to probe beneath the shallowing of faith, and, and the shallowing of faith here is simply when you say, well, I have th this is my faith, and then you give statements of belief. But the failure to probe beneath the shallowing of faith, equating it with the modern understanding of belief, means to perpetuate and widen the modern divorce of belief and faith. If faith is reduced to belief in creedal statements and doctrinal formulations, then sensitive and responsible persons are likely to judge that they must live without faith. Oh, man. But if faith is understood as trust in another and as loyalty to a transcendent center of value and power, then the issue of faith and the possibility of religious faith becomes entirely lively and open again. So when I see Alma coming here, so with that in mind, that's, that's how I'm coming to faith. When Alma is, well, Alma's awakening the inner sense, and he's, he's bringing these people into an experience like, I wish I would have had an Alma in my life when I had no hope, because I was looking for hope and I didn't have anyone to help show me that where the hope was found, that it's that inner sense of drive. And in my life, there's been times when I've suffered from you know, anxiety or, or bouts of depression where it's like, you know, I, where is that thing? It's even hard to find it. And it takes time and it takes moments of being able to go over these things. But to find that within myself, that motivation, that, that power by which, that, that center, that all things I act upon, I see Alma doing that for these, these people who are finally ready for it, who come and approach him. And they've been, they've been beaten down physically because of their poverty. And it's because a lot of them because of their physical poverty, not all, but most of them because of their physical poverty that have kind of brought them into a place where they're more receptive to the word than the rich people who don't have to rely on God for their next meal. But with these people, man, you see Alma just bringing out this beautiful, beautiful light within them, the seed in his word to grow and to blossom into this wonderful fruit. You know, uh, verse 13, where it says, because you're compelled to be humble, blessed are ye, 
I had a discussion with someone once about this use of the word compelled because uh, they inferred from this that because they were being compelled that this was something that was uh, that God was imposing upon them. And he's like, well, God wouldn't compel people. I said, well, it doesn't say anything about God compelling them here. This is their circumstances of their their brethren who kicked them out and compelled them to be humble. And Alma's saying, blessed are ye. Well, this is another allusion to a beatitude, right? With them being persecuted for righteousness sake, blessed are they, you know, rejoice. And Alma's saying, hey, I know you feel like this is a bad thing, but this is actually a good thing, and let me tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> so, really interesting here that uh, you know he uses that "blessed are ye" a lot in here. Uh, this this is Alma teaching that concept to these people. Uh, I really like what you said about faith, and I think the distinction there that he makes. I'll have to. I really need to work through in my mind a bunch of times so that I, because I think it's useful. It's not just a semantics thing. This is actually a useful distinction because what I think it helps us do is it helps us sort out what we really want to experience in life. What is it that we, like you said, what is it that we really are loyal to? What makes us, what makes you tick, right? And I think that is sort of the very definition of what we would say our God is, right? God do we have faith in? Is it a God of mercy? Is mercy what really makes us tick? Is love what makes us tick? Or is our desire for justice and revenge, is that what makes us tick? Well, then that's the God we worship, right? And so I see this sort of this tautological statement, right? That what we have faith in is literally what our God is. So we have faith in God. Well, everyone has faith in God. I think, like I said, I think that's kind of tautological. Um, it's just, what is their God? And uh, so, I, I anyway, I think that what you said there and what you read is, is really useful in terms of us understanding what we mean by faith and, and how we can sort out what what our experiences are. When Alma here talks about hope, he is placing these people in a state of, of opportunity because they feel like they've lost everything. They they don't have any worldly possessions to speak of, and now they don't have a place to worship. So they not only don't have anything physically, but they don't have anything spiritually. And again, this is this Alma looks at as wonderful, as great. These people are empty, they're ready to receive. And they don't quite see it yet, but they're going to, they're going to be filled and receive that blessing and, uh, and understand, gain that experience, I should say. One of the stories that I grew up with from my father on his mission, he, if, man, if I hold, heard the story once, I heard it a thousand times, but on his mission to Bolivia, President Joseph Fielding Smith came down and talked with a bunch of the missionaries. And the conversation was on how to identify and experience the Holy Ghost. And how do you know you're having a spiritual experience? And man, man I've heard the story so many times. Is, is the, and I grew up on it, and I bless my father for, for this story, because it really did impact my life, is that President Smith told the missionaries that 
you will have an amazing spiritual experience through your life. And it's going to impact you. It's going to be strong. It's going to be powerful. It's going to come. And wham, you're going to know it. You're going to know exactly what it is. And you're going to act upon it. And it's going to be exactly what you thought it was, a true spiritual experience and everything that goes along with it. And then down the line in your life, you're going to have a very similar experience where, man, it's strong. It's powerful. It comes at you. You're like, wow, this is just like before. And you're going to act on it. And then the whole experience is going to fall flat. And you're going to recognize and realize, no, that was not, in fact, the spirit. And then you're going to be in a conundrum. You're going to be in a moment when you have these two experiences side by side, and you'll begin to doubt, wondering what is truth, because the second one seems so much like the first. And he said, in a lot of times, people give up here. This is what people give up, and they say, well, obviously, I can't know what's here for me, or I can't discern between the two. And so they begin to discount the one because of the latter. But in this particular case, the one thing that President Smith said that he told my dad and my dad, and I'm, I'm kind of the in, inheritor of this story, is to have experimentations with the spirit, to be able to play games with the spirit, to even make our relationship with God a, as fun as an endeavor to be able to interact and to have a joyful relationship with God, to be able to test it. And so when I see Alma here in Alma 32, uh, this has always spoken to me very deeply because of that. But be, but behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work within you even until you believe in a manner that ye will, can give place for a portion of my words. I love that. So that, that whole thing there with the experimentation upon the word. And in my life, it's been extremely beneficial. It's, I mean, it's to say it's been extremely beneficial is a, is a gross understatement, is that experimenting with God and with the Spirit has been my faith. That is the inner, that is the inner working thing that I rely upon my entire identity for. And that, you know, it, over time that develops and it gets deeper and deeper. And just when I think it's like, man, I don't know if I can get deeper. It just sinks deeper. And you're like, wow, that was an experience that was powerful. And then now we get into the seed analogy. The seed is such a great analogy, Ben, about a seed, just a very small seed. You plant it. And I, I just started a garden for the first time as an adult. I, I was I uh, I was like, man, what do I do with this space over here? I'm like, well, we could do a lot of stuff. Let's plant a garden because, you you know, I like $50 tomatoes I'm, <laughs> because that's what they end up costing, right? Gardens are expensive. But, <laughs> but what I absolutely love about it is that I planted a seed and I didn't do anything about it but water it. I prepared the soil for it and I watered it and it took on a life of its own. And That's right. You live in California. You have to water your seeds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For those who, who live in Missouri and you need a place where it rains. You know, when I moved, to, I, I moved from Utah to Memphis as a kid to Memphis, Tennessee, when I was a teenager, and it shocked my family that nobody had a sprinkler systems. Like, how do you water your grass? And everybody looked at us like we were stupid because, you know, we were. We didn't know the, what the weather was, but it rained so much. Nobody needed a sprinkler. But yeah, we have to water our plants here. So I have it up on an automatic drip because if I were to... 
and and I think this is so powerful with the analogy because in my life, unless I get things set up kind of on an automated basis, yeah. I cannot keep plants alive for the life of me. Like for instance, it's been four days since I've gone out to the garden and it would have been dead otherwise, but I had the sense to put an automatic drip in there with the timer and everything. So I don't have to think about it. And I don't know, maybe I don't know how to make an analogy out of this to put my spirituality on autopilot, but at least what I do is I carve out for myself times when I know that I can actually be a part of the scriptures and I can carve out for my time and day. And that really does help, uh, help my life. But yeah, you plant a seed, you watch it grow. And I'm like, wow, it's just like, it's just like Alma. It just takes on a life of its own. Well, I, I mean, the analogy works in, uh, in a different, a lot of different ways. It teaches us a lot of, uh, different aspects about how, uh, God can work with us. And, you know, my, my dad always used to tell me, you were talking about spiritual experiences. And my dad always used to tell me, you know, you can't force a spiritual experience. You can't have some formula for a spiritual experience. The spirit, getting the spirit in your life is like coaxing. He, he would use the example of like coaxing an animal, right? A wild animal that you have to coax. You can't force it to come to you. It's something you have to coax and persuade. I, as I become a parent and had all those different types of experiences, I've, uh, uh, I've liked the comparison to trying to put a baby to sleep, right? It, there's, there's certain things uh, you can do, but there's no guarantee that it's just going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically an experiment. You do, you have to experiment with different things and, and there's no guarantee that it's going to work exactly the same every time, but you cannot force it. It's impossible to force a baby to go to sleep. What do you, what do you have to do? You have to have patience and love, long suffering. <laughs> um, all those things, you know, it, it's, it's these qualities that are also inherent in, in children a lot of times. Um, and that's why I like how that all kind of fits together with Christ telling us that we need to become as little children. Um, and <clears throat> so I, I, I like that concept of, of having to persuade and coax and experiment with the spirit. You know, it's pointed been pointed out to me several times, and and I think it, uh, it could be pointed out again that occasionally we'll uh, have the tendency, or that we'll be tempted to compare the seed to faith, and that's not what Alma says it is. He says the word is the seed. We will compare uh, the word unto a seed. And then in thirty three, you know, they get into well, what do they mean by the word? Well, they mean Christ. This is the experiment I want you guys to make. And it's that of Christ. It's that of taking upon you the name of Christ and really experiencing what it is to live life as he would. And that's an experiment. It's an experience. And what are you experimenting on? Well, does this really yield the fruit that of meaning that I'm looking for in my life? Does this really yield the fruit of uh, the love that I want to feel, the relationship that I want to have with God? Um, and Alma is promising them that Christ is the way and, and that he is the seed that we plant. And as we 
are turning ourselves to him and trying to emulate his actions, we will see that the experience that we have um, is that of feeling God's love and understanding who he is. I like the distinction you make there with about the the word, because in 38, he tells us, we know, if your experiment failed, <laughs> let's, let's, let's try to analyze a few things that could possibly happen if it failed. But if ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it because it hath no root, it withers away and ye pluck it up and cast it out. Now, this is not because the seed was not good. Neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, but it is because your ground is barren and it will not nourish the tree. Therefore, you cannot have the fruit thereof. And if I'm being honest with my story about those years that I was struggling with my hope, maybe there was something that was going on. I've, I've gone back to try to reanalyze those years of my life and what I could have done differently. And in a lot of ways, I think that Maybe there was something I could do differently. Maybe it was just something I, I needed to learn. Maybe there was no meaning in it. Maybe there was a ton of meaning in it. But regardless, what I've found now is that through continual experimentation on it, and like you said, patience, long-suffering, meekness, humility, all hard virtues to, to cultivate when you feel in pain. Because when you're in pain, you just want to be out of pain. And for someone to come along and say, be patient in your pain, seems kind of like a slap. Yet, it's in those moments when I've looked back and I've realized uh, the goodness of God in my life in the most painful moments. And I, I see God in those moments. And it's been, I've said it, I think I've said it before here, where I'm learning to see God in trauma and pain and in those moments of sadness in our lives, where when God said it is good with the creation, all of it was. And it's taken me a long time to come to a place where I can even begin to glimpse the truthfulness of that. But with the experimentation, just because the gospel may not yield the fruit that I'm looking for, you know, a lot of it, I do have to be able to humble myself to to recognize. Well, Lord, is it me? Uh, I had an, I had a, a, an experience here several weeks ago where I was just wasn't consciously meditating on it, but I was I was just kind of almost subconsciously thinking about the disciples during the Last Supper when Christ had asked or had told them that one of you is about to betray me, and the thought occurred to me that when the disciples came one by one and asked, Lord, is it I? Uh, the amount of humility and of just, just openness and willing to empty themselves of all of what they think they know about themselves in that moment, to be so open to truth and to, and to Christ that even with all of their loyalty in their heart, they still have the humility to approach the Savior and say and question and question themselves, Lord, is it me? Am I about ready to do this? And it was really powerful when it hit me that way, that the faith that it takes to keep ourselves open to continual experimentation and cons cons consistent revelation into our lives, um, 
of how that was expressed. So here with Alma, I see a lot of that going on as well. That same kind of him desiring them to open up in, in these ways to empty and to be able to see how you will be feel, filled with joy. You know, the the discussion here of in our experience that we're not, it's not going to just all be, you know, happiness and joy <clears throat> from the moment that we uh, take upon ourselves the name of Christ or make a covenant. You know, it's not just instantaneous joy and then, and uh, that lasts forever. Neither is that the case for our eternal existence or what we might term as heaven. I do not think it consistent with uh, my experience or the character of God to say that heaven is a place of just constant bliss. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, what makes sense to me is that the experience and the life that God lives is infinite. And that accounts for all experiences. And Doctrine and Covenants 132 alludes to this. It says that we will inherit all heights and depths, the greatest joys that we can experience and also the greatest sorrows. As a family, we're reading Pearl of Great Price. We're in Moses chapter 7 right now, where Enoch is having his vision. And he's seeing the whole world and all the wickedness and sorrow that is there. And he looks to God and sees that God is crying, that he's weeping. And he asks, how is this possible? You're, you're God. You can't be sad. You shouldn't ever be sad. God's always just happy because God is eternal and he knows everything and nothing makes him sad. And then Enoch learns something about who God is, that that's not what it is to experience Godhood. What it is to experience Godhood is to experience everything, all heights and depths. I don't, I don't know exactly how this ties into what Alma was saying. You got me here. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm I'm loving it. So keep going. But there's a ton there. You know, uh, my wife and I spent uh, quite a while talking about all those aspects of the the Enoch uh, vision and how it really teaches us about being with God and and what it what it means to experience who he is and, and who we are in relation to him. But this is just the beginning of this journey that Alma here is is describing to these people and he's he's saying you know as you start down this path you're going to experience all kinds of things ups and downs okay it's not just constant you plant the seed boom there's fruit great you plant the seeds again boom there's fruit everything is just perfect right there's a lot of ups and downs along the way and that's part of it that's just part of the experience and that's who god is and that's who you are and you're gonna experience that and that's okay that's the way it's supposed to be and you will realize as you experience that that is good and just like you were saying like with the creation right that this is good that a person can experience all of these things is good 
and it's the very definition of of who God is to have that range of experience. I think it it no small coincidence that if we if we turn to the the pre-mortal existence narrative that it would seem that Satan's efforts were to reduce that experience in some way, right? That that those things wouldn't be experienced. And and God said, no, my children need to experience everything um, because that's who they are. So again, back to how Alma is, is trying to get them on this road of this journey and experience here and saying, here's this seed. This is what it's going to be like once you plant this seed of Christ and you decide to take upon yourselves his name and emulate him in your lives, it's going to be a long journey. But I promise you that it's good. It, all that will come of this is good. Then last week we talked about a little bit about the, the different natures of God that we kind of go through, about how we see God. And it's it's very broad. It's it's kind of an overview, and and sometimes it's a little bit oversimplistic. But I think it's a useful distinction, at least initially, to be able to help us order our feelings and to know how and what we're coming to the divine with. But we talked about you know the the first stage of like having an ambivalent God, and the second stage of this transactional God, where it seems to be that most scripture, like ninety five percent of scripture, it seems to be that's where it's written from, is in that transactional phase. Until we get to this place where we begin to see that God is not totally in this transactional phase where he's not totally for us or against us, but he's only for us when we are obedient and he's, but otherwise, if we're not, then he's against us. So we kind of have to fear a God that's coming after us with, with hellfire and fury if we're not living up to what, uh, to what he says we should do. But if we do live up to it, then he provides a savior for us and he provides a path for us. But you know, we have to fear God if we're not doing what's uh, what's right. But in this final stage, it's in this third stage. I don't know, maybe there's a fourth stage. I haven't come across anything writing about it. But at least in in this discussion, it's a very transformative God where He's always loving. There has never, never, ever been a time where He has not loved us, and that, as I said last week, He's the the father of the prodigal son, always running towards us and always being there um, to to bring us in to to everything that he is. And so when I read uh, when I read here in Alma thirty three, and Ben, I'd be interested in your in what you said last week about um, our repentance process and about how we come to a knowledge of God. Because I think as we get into this, it really helps set a beautiful tone into what Alma and Amulek talk about in this transformational way. But specifically in Alma 33, 11 through, I think, 16, it says, And thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and in my sincerity, and it is because of thy son that thou hast been merciful unto me. Therefore I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions, yea, and for in thee is my joy, for thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. You know, this is this seeming very seemingly transactional, where God is is naturally against us. Except for when we do what he says, then the son is what kind of turns away the wrathful God away from us. And now Alma said unto them, Do you believe the scriptures which have been written by them of old? Behold, if you do, you must believe what Zenos has said. Behold, he said, Thou hast turned away thy judgment because of thy son. Again, almost as if to say God is primarily coming against us, except for 
the Son. In verse 14, Now behold, my brethren, I would ask if you have read the scriptures, if you have, how can you disbelieve on the Son of God? For is for it is not for it is not written that Zenus alone spake of these things, but also Zenic also spoke of those things. For behold, he said, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. Again, it seems to be that uh, there's this wrathful, angry, vengeful God that's coming after us, except for if we uh, if we do what he says. Or, Ben, is there another way of looking at this? Is there is there an uh, an always merciful, loving Father? And how do we look at that? How do we resolve the two between a transcendent God that is half the time sending us down to hellfire and damnation, and half of us there helping us with the Son, and, and the Son is kind of what shields us against the wrathful God, and the wrathful God gave us a merciful Son, um, versus kind of the the Father that we see in the prodigal Son. Yeah, uh, I can see how there's there's a lot of questions begged here, right? God so capricious is is he so offended by our sin that you know it affects him, right? Uh, that that just seems like a seems like it could be a, a weak God, and there are obviously multiple ways of looking at this, like you talked about in terms of uh, our our perspective of God. But the way that makes most sense to me in terms of that consistency, and if the scriptures tell us, you know, God is constant and consistent and and unchanging in terms of his character, then the way that makes most sense to me is that what Alma and then later Amulek is describing here is literally this experience that we're going through that has bouts of repentance within it, right? So as we are experiencing this, you know, having this experiment of the word of planting Christ in our hearts, we're having moments where we are turned away from God and are away from a, a loving, merciful God. And the God that we are experiencing is not that loving, merciful God. It's a vengeful, hateful, wrathful God. But it's not the God that we have to experience. As soon as we repent, uh, and, I, and I like the, the phrase he uses here, it says that thou hast turned away judgment. Turn thy judgments away from me because of thy son. Well, turn away is the antithesis of repent. You know, repent is to turn toward God. And, and to turn away, you know, this is interesting here because it says turn thy judgments away. And here we have uh, basically the description of a process that's happening within a person when they choose to experience God in a different way. And that's just a choice that we make in the moment. We choose our perspective. We choose to see God as loving and merciful. And in the moment that we are repenting, changing our perspective of who God is, all of a sudden, he's not a vengeful, wrathful, angry God anymore. And our, ex our experience changes from that of that anger to that of that love. So I like how Alma gets into this and he talks about here, he says, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. Well, of course, you know, their refusal to understand a merciful God 
is a part of the whole uh the part of the whole perception of an angry god and the fact that they are not looking to Christ and seeing the mercy that's evidenced in Christ uh means that all that they view God as is just judgmental and angry. But as soon as they accept Christ and view him as the manifestation of who God is, all of a sudden those judgments are turned away, right? We don't see God as angry anymore. So uh, I know I'm reiterating this point over and over again, but all, all to basically make the point that this is really a change in our perception not God's perception. This is a change in our attitude towards him, not his attitude towards us. His attitude towards us is always the same. We're his children. He wants us to experience everything he has for us to experience. I absolutely love that. And that really does speak to me, especially here. And you touched on it right here with 19, 20, and 21, when he brings up the type of Moses and the bronze serpent. In simply looking to Christ and being healed, we we go through that repentance process. Man, if I had if I had a dime for every time I've said I love the LDS Bible Dictionary's definition of repentance, but it uh, it it's so good that it's all about identity. It's changing our identity. It's seeing God afresh. It's seeing God in a new way. It's we are born into this celestial world. We're born into this this world where we see things, where we project our emotions, we project our fears, we project us onto God. And repentance is this turning back to seeing God for who God really is. And we live in these just self-justifying circles where we experience our life, because you know, what we talked about with faith, you brought up that uh, faith is that God within us, that God begins to look like our inner self in a lot of ways. And when we let go and we surrender that ego and and we just sit in these moments, and that's where contemplation has really become powerful for me, because I've often wondered at what point can I tap into God beyond my own ego? beyond the the parameters of my own experience beyond the parameters of my own language beyond the beyond these limits and boxes that this life imposes upon me how can i experience the divine in ways in tapping into the unknown unknown and contemplation has really done that in just sitting with with god and being open to in the silence to what god will present and, you know, this is, I, I've, uh, Elder Richard J. Scott used to talk about this all the time, uh, when he would talk about being quiet after you say a prayer and letting the spirit talk to you. And whenever he would ask a question, he would have to sit for a long time in order for that, for that to come. You know, he was, he was talking about contemplation. He was talking about those moments of letting the divine sink into us. And so when we see here in Alma in 19 and 20 that the, all they had to do was look. They just had to expand their horizon on who and what God was to see God differently. And they refused to do it. 
because they were more comfortable in their current narratives of belief than they were in actually experiencing the healing that God has for them. That They literally damn themselves. And I, I love that distinction you make, that we see God from our perspective. And when we are laboring in sin, the more we are laboring in sin, the more we see a wrathful, vengeful God, because he reflects that essence of the life that we're living. And one of the things that has always been there for, for me is that I've recognized, and I think this is really what has pulled me into trusting into a truly transformative God, and has kind of given me the faith and the ability of trying to let go of my old concepts of God and coming into a new relationship with Him, has been that it's in the moments of my life when I have least deserved the divine, when I've least qualified for the love of God, that I have been doing nothing in and of myself to be able to say, I was doing this and this is the blessing of my own work. That is in those moments of absolute poverty of every sort where God has found me in the gutter. Where he's come after me and he's found me in the moments when I didn't deserve it. And if that's the case... I have to believe that there is a, a life beyond transaction, that we just get the reward of what we put into it, that there is an essence of grace that we simply don't talk about a lot in our church culture that permeates the life of God in how he comes and is always, always running after his children to embrace us in his love. And it's in those moments when I didn't deserve it that I saw the never ending and the never failing and the long suffering love of God. You know, I really like this allusion to Moses that Alma does because, as you were saying, it it really brings to our attention the fact that uh, these people, all they needed to do was look. They didn't want to look because this thing that that Moses had crafted was a serpent. It was something fearful to them, right? They were afraid of this. This has been causing them issues. And Moses said, look, and they were afraid of it. Their perception of this thing was that it was bad, that this was what was causing them pain. And yet Moses said, no, look at it and you will see that it's not. And that's so powerful to me because it, it tells, it, it describes exactly what I'm trying to talk about here, that we will often view God as judgmental and and not go to him and there's there's nothing that we must do to be worthy to pray to our father in heaven there there's no qualifications the only qualifications are to look just turn our head right to turn our head and look which is that metaphorical repenting so I love that imagery used here, the allusion to that story used here for these people. And it, and it really was helpful to them because they, they understood this story. It was part of their scripture saying, you just look to Christ. At the beginning of this chapter, and then again in 34, there's this uh, sort of poetic uh, literary device used of this repetition about prayer. And I like it for one of the principles in particular that it teaches about God. In, in our in the context that we're talking about here, he says, uh, starting in four, thou art merciful, O God, for thou hast heard my prayer even when I was in the wilderness. You know, I think this talks to what you were just saying, Shiloh, when you were in the gutter. 
Thou wast merciful when I prayed concerning those who were mine enemies, and thou didst turn them to me. He says, Thou wast merciful to me when I did cry in my field. Verse 6, In my house, in my closet, thou art merciful unto thy children when they cry unto thee, to be heard of thee and not of men, and thou wilt hear them. He says in verse 9, In the midst of thy congregations, when I have been cast out and despised, Thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions. He he goes on and on, and this is kind of get becomes poetic, and it's it's beautiful in its its poetry because it it helps us experience in the words itself what he's trying to get us to understand, and so that that's pretty pretty neat about how Mormon did that. And and here's what I think he's trying to get us to experience. At least one of the things he might be trying to get us to experience, and it's that God is everywhere. Wherever we are, whatever state we're in, no matter how far away we think we are from his love, all we have to do is turn to him and boom, he's there. He, we don't have to, you know, we haven't like diverged down a path and now we've got to chop our way back through the wilderness till we can get back to where Jesus is and we have to do that all alone, right? I think you you talked about this. As soon as he's standing right there beside us, and all we have to do is turn our head and look. And as soon as we look to him, he will walk with us back to where we need to be. And so I like that these here, because then in, in verse 34, he talks about, you know, crying unto him in our fields and in our houses and against the power of our enemies and against the power of the devil, crops of our fields, you know, all of these things. He's saying God is in everything and everywhere, and we need to make him part of our experience, no matter what it is. Going forward into 34, I'm looking at Amulek's reiteration here of crying to God in the field and in the houses, and to have power over the enemies, and to have power over the devil, and in your crops and your flocks. And he comes here into verse 32, the very well, you know, the scripture mastery, the old scripture mastery from seminary. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. You know, the, that old beatitude, the beatitude of the pure in heart, they shall see God. You know, here we are again. It's, it's this life is, I, I've looked at these verses here in, in a transactional way of saying, you know what, this is the time when we need to be tested. We need to do X in order for Y to happen. We need to be able to see that we did this so that this over here can happen. And rather, what, what's, what's coming to me a lot of the time, in what's coming to me from this now, is that this life being a time for us to prepare to meet God, is like you said, it's, it's more descriptive than it is prescriptive. And what it's saying is that this life, you get to experience what is God in this life. You get to prepare and you get to be and experience those things here, do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. Do, why, why would you put this off? Do you have a different contract with the universe than what we have right now? Why would why would you possibly put this off? Now, a lot of ways, I I th you know I used to read this in terms, and maybe maybe that was the way that was given, but it seems to be you know when I used to train salesmen door to door, there's this uh, this sales tactic that we use where it's a limited time only, right? You create scarcity <laughs> in a limited time only. I'm only going to be here today. I'm only doing this half price right now. If you want it right now is the time to do it. You can't call me back tomorrow. Right now is the decision. 
and you kind of force people into doing it and you scare them because they have this feeling like they're going to lose out. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how I've read this scripture before. And in fact, I know that's exactly how I've read this scripture before, that this is like the scarcity scripture. This life is the only time for prayer to prepare to meet God, yea, and behold, the day of this life is a day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech you to not procrastinate the day of your repentance, and that this is it, that after this is the eternal, the eternal rest, right? And now I'm coming to a place where I don't see this as you've got to hurry, because I don't truly believe God hurries. I don't think he's in a hurry. When you have the knowledge of all things from the beginning to the end, because there is no beginning or end, but you still have that view, where's the hurry? Things are just what they are. And in this, it's simply, don't procrastinate, but let me show you a life where you can be filled with joy. Let me give you this experience to where you can experience something so transformative and transcendent that you won't even know how to use words to explain what this is going to be. And so I used to read this in kind of more of a sales tactic of fear. But now I read Amulek, and what I see out of Amulek is a desire and a call for men to simply experience the true potential of what it means to be human. And for me, that means to experience what it means to be Christ. We take upon ourselves that name of Christ and all of what the Beatitudes entail, and we are filled with that with that love and we become the children of God. So that's what I that's what's coming to me out of these scriptures this time through. Yeah, and I, I think that's a more consistent way to view it. I mean, here Amulek is saying, look, if you're not gonna change your view about God now, when are you going to do it? Like when do you plan on doing this? Right. If you're not going to repent now, when when were you planning on doing that? Well, if you were going to do it tomorrow, just do it right now and you'll experience everything that you could experience tomorrow right now. You know? And uh so I I like that here where he, I love this 31. I've always loved this phrase. He says, "If you will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you." Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Right now. Immediately. And 34, I feel like this really explains more this concept that it's not about urgency. It's simply about who, uh, you know, what perspective we're choosing to have. And if we're not choosing it right now in this moment, when are we planning on doing it? And he says, you cannot say this, you know, that you'll repent. You can't just say, well, you know, I, I'm doing okay right now. I'll figure out the repentance thing later because that's not what repentance is at all. You know, if you really saw who God is in your relationship to him, you wouldn't want to do it later. You want to do it right now because you want to experience him right now. You want to have that experience in this moment. You cannot say this. For the same spirit with the, which doth possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, the same spirit will have the power to possess your body in the eternal world. In other words, you, you're not going to just change your mind about God because of some, something that happens after you die. This is a choice you're going to have to make, period. 
And you really want to make that choice right now because you're going to have the best experience. <laughs> um, and, you know, you were talking about the sales thing. You know, uh, you know, why is it that you use that sales tactic? Well, it's because if you know that if the person doesn't buy right now, they're never going to. Yeah. Right. And yes, you're using some fear to do that. But, you know, you can't think about that in the, the gospel sense, right? If we're not going to repent right now, are we really ever going to? Because right now is always right now. Right? This is the day of your salvation. But God is infinitely patient. And so he'll always wait for today to be the day of our salvation. But we might as well make it today because then we get to immediately experience who he is and our relationship with him. This is kind of completely changing topics here a little bit, but I, I like 12 and 13 um, as it contrasts the current system that they live under versus what we know is coming, right? It says, because it's talking about uh, retribution and what the law requires in terms of murder, the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore, there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Therefore, it is expedient that there should be a great and a last sacrifice, and then shall there be, or it is expedient that there should be, a stop to the shedding of blood. And I had never connected that phrase there, a stop to the shedding of blood, to the previous verse. In other words, the law that we're living under right now, which he calls just, right? Which is interesting. You know, he doesn't call it righteousness. He just says, yeah, this is a just recompense. Someone kills and then their life is forfeit. The law requires that life. But when Christ comes, this is the better way. A stop to the shedding of blood. Because he's going to teach us that higher way. And I just see Amulek here really foreshadowing or or predicting prophesying of this that christ will come and say those old things are done away the way that you've done things is is not the way that you should be doing them from now on that's a great observation there i'm gonna have to think about that one i'm gonna, I'm gonna sit with that one for a while tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> um i also like verse 15 here this goes along with uh one of the concepts we've been talking about in terms of this sort of ethereal law of physics type justice, cosmic justice, right? That that is that has to be satisfied by a sacrifice. And I, I can I admit that this is how Alma and Amulek's words could be interpreted, but I also submit that if we have a little change of perspective here, again, this is our, our changing our view of God. And if we will change our view of God here, these verses can mean something different. And to me, they're more profound. Here it says in verse 15, he's talking of Christ. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name. This being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. And uh, I looked at, you know, Christ is his atonement 
you know, in my mind for, for many years, it was like he was wrestling with this cosmic justice and he overpowered it. Right. But it's not, it's not the cosmic justice that he's wrestling with. It's us. It's our attitudes and desires for vengeance and justice that he's wrestling with, that his sacrifice and his atonement calls us to give up. That the bowels of mercy may overpower that, that we may give up our demands for those and instead be persuaded by mercy as we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And that's how, that's the means by which we have faith unto repentance. So this, this verse means something to me, I believe, much more profound than it did before. Uh, it, this faceless, unknowable cosmic justice that really I didn't understand what it meant. But now when I bring that personal, you know what, that's me that he is overpowering or that's my attitudes about who God is, that he is sacrificing to change. I, I love that quote. I think we've quoted it before. You know, Christ, Christ's atonement, this isn't exact quote, but Christ didn't come to change God's view of us. He came to change our view of God. And as we look to him, we will realize that this vengeful, wrathful, angry God is not the God that Christ is teaching us to know. What you said there about justice has been highly transformative for me as I've gone back through the scriptures, because I noticed that the way that the Western world interprets justice is universally that it is simply who, what, where, when, and how much violence can be used in order to curb behavior or to render back that which was taken. So bad behavior happens, and justice is who, what, where, when, and how much violence can be used back to the initial person in order to make it seem fair. And this is the very common trait, and of all the libraries on justice, it really boils down to people's different discussion on who they think should do it, how much they think it should be, where they think it should be. But at the end of the day, it all supposes violence. And I just have not seen God that way. So when I read one of my favorite quotes from Elder Holland, he gave it a BYU address, and he says, please don't ask if it's fair that the injured should have to bear the burden of forgiveness for the offender. Please don't ask if justice doesn't demand that it be the other way around. No, whatever you do, don't ask for justice. You and I know that when we plead for is mercy, and that is what we must be willing to give. And so, just like you said, there that concept that you expressed there of, of justice, Ben, fits right in line with that. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. You know, right here as we're going into verse chapter 35, we see that the Zoramites are mostly not converted, that the rich remain mostly unconverted, and yet the poor and the destitute mostly convert in mass. And as the poor are converted, the Zoramites basically kick them out. <laughs> they don't like, we don't want you here anymore. So they kicked them out. And the Alma and his brethren, they took him over to the people of Jershon because that, <laughs> that's who they are. They're cool people. 
And of course, they're going to accept him. And so they bring him in, and that causes a lot of contention with the Zoramites. They're like, no, well, when we kicked them out, we didn't want them to have to go find a place. We just wanted to kick them out and have them suffer. So they got really upset. And then this ends up causing more dissensions among the Zoramites against against the people. But when they came to the but when they came to Jershon, the anti-Nephi Lehi's ended up leaving Jershon and they went and they settled in Melik. And so they actually leave for the most part and they're out of Jershon and they give the Zoramite, the poor Zor- Zoramites, a lot of the land there in Jershon for their inheritance. And I think this is absolutely fascinating in verse 14. And Alma and Ammon and their brethren and also the two sons of Alma returned to the land of Zarahemla after having been instruments in the hands of God in bringing many of the Zoramites to repentance. And as many as were brought to repentance were driven out of their land, but they have their lands up for inheritance in the land of Jershon. And they have taken up arms to defend themselves and their wives and children and their lands. Isn't that interesting? And the very next verse, and now and now Alma, being grieved for the iniquity of his people, yea, for the wars and the bloodsheds and the contentions which were among them, and having been to declare the word or sent to declare the word among all the people in every city, and seeing that the hearts of the people began to wax hard, did they begin to be offended because of the strictness of the word, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. And herein we begin to see this this is the bedrock now of the war chapters. We are now moving in. This is all the preliminary discussion into framing and contextualizing the war chapters. This has been very instrumental because we learned all the way back in Alma 28 from several weeks ago that Alma 28 is a transition period. It literally says that they're halfway through. It says, now we're going to end with the missionary stories. Now we're going to start with the war narrative. And then from there, from that, we get Alma's, Alma's psalm, his soliloquy. We get Korahor. We get the Zoramites. Now we're going to get a few lectures to Alma's son, Alma's sons next week. And then boom, now all of this is to contextualize why the war happens. Why, why this half? Because the first half of Alma is all about missionary work. The second half of Alma is all about war. And we have Mormon juxtaposing the two narratives against each other, showing that war, even with its best of the best of the best of the best people, the most spiritual people, the kind of people that if everybody was like them, the foundations of hell would shake, right? That even with those people, war never, ever brings about anything remotely, anything remotely close to what missionary work brought about, even in its best day. And in fact, war loses on every account. And so it's going to be an interesting way to be able to juxtapose that. But yeah, we see here immediately that the Zoramites, you know, and it proves it again. Ammon was right that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's when converted, they were so thoroughly converted to the Christ and to what it means to be Christ. And that he had said, that Ammon said, this has never existed in the Nephites. And again, here we see it again, that even the Zoramites, as soon as they get their lands of possession, now they seek to defend it with the sword. Whereas the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they just leave. <laughs> they're, they're like, we're not going to, we're not going to participate in this. And, and then we'll see, uh, we'll definitely see how that shakes out with the sons of Helaman. And, and that'll be a great discussion to have in a couple of weeks when we get there. But uh, 
You know, I, I, I don't know that I'd ever quite picked up. I mean, I knew that the Zoramites went to the Antanevi Lehi's, but I hadn't quite picked up. And then I knew that they left Jershon. But I, I, you're right. It's basically they relinquished their lands to the Zoramites. They just gave them up to the Zoramites and went somewhere else. I mean, wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I read verse 9 and it's really something. And then you read verse 14 and that's, or verse 13 and 14, and that's really something else. Really, not only were they willing to give, to, to take in the poor Zoramites and to give unto them, and it says administer unto them according to their wants, but they literally just give up all of their lands to them as well for inheritance. Uh, the people continue to, amaze at their faith and willing to sacrifice for their the other you know alma this this narrative here at the at the end of this chapter we we could kind of see alma's whole this whole arc here of his leaving judgment seat and going to preach as an effort to bring the people unto greater righteousness and then also to prevent war and so forth as a failure right? 15, verse 15 it is Alma's almost feeling a lot of, you know, he's feeling the sorrow here, right? And we might look at this as Alma as a failure, right? But at the same time, you have to consider all of the people that really did experience the love of God because of what Alma brought to them, what he taught them and what he persuaded them of and and uh, set an example of as high priest and so that's not a failure at all um and the the outcome of wars and contentions are simply uh that that's that's what the beatitudes tell us will happen there's the persecution of the righteous when they are turning to accept christ but I see something else here in Alma because you're right. You know, we start into these war chapters here after Alma uh, talks with his sons. And then the narrative moves into after Mar Captain Moroni and then Moroniha, we move into the book of Helaman. And we're going to have the sons of Helaman, Nephi and Lehi, go among the Lamanites and preach to them. And one of the things that they talk about is the when they get among the Lamanites is they allude to the things that were taught to them by the sons of Mosiah and Alma and Amulek. And this is so interesting because what this tells me is that Alma, in this sense, is acting as a type of Elias, right? He's preparing the way for greater work to come that happens with the sons of Helaman, uh, Nephi and Lehi. And he's he's planting where he's not reaping, you know, he's sowing where he's not reaping, I should say. Uh, and that that speaks to the, the faith of, of Alma. And, and it's a very interesting type of analogy in, in, in light of Alma chapter 32 as well. But uh, yeah. I had never considered that before. I'm going to go read that. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Ben, next week we are going to talk about Alma talking to his sons. That's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to be able to bring that out as a way of contextualizing the war. I mean, there are great standalone chapters in context between the Zoramites 
Um, it's just, it's awesome. Everything from Helaman to Shiblon and then to Coriantin and, and even everything that he said to Coriantin, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So I can't wait for the discussion next week. Yeah, this is Alma imparting what he can of his life's wisdom to his sons. And uh, obviously there's it says there's a lot more that he tells them they don't have written here, but it's great. It'll be interesting to kind of try to pull out of what he's teaching to his sons. You know, wh- when, when did Alma learn this and and when did he experience this based on what we, we understand of, of his life up to this point? So, Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening. Thank you for being here thus far. And uh, leave any comments, questions, thoughts, experiences. We're excited to hear them. But until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.